Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Just a heads up, we did have some audio issues that we couldn't quite seem to resolve, though wearing headphones does seem to take some of the static away. That said, we believe that there's some really awesome content and that you'll really enjoy this show. All right, and welcome uh, to episode 18 of the Strength Ratio podcast. I'm extremely excited to introduce our guest today. Now, this guest has had a tremendous influence. He doesn't really know it yet, as I'm speaking, but a tremendous influence on our core principles and daily program design. This is his bachelor's in kinesiology from the University of Michigan, master's from App State, his PhD in sports physiology at ETSU, which is actually where I will be for a weightlifting competition the time that this airs. And, uh, excuse me, since his formal education, he's gone on to be the head nutrition consultant at the Olympic Training Center. He's professed at Central Missouri and at Temple, and is now the head science consultant at the time of Renaissance Periodization. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Mike Patel. Dr. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm super excited that you're going to East Tennessee State University for a weightlifting meet. Yeah, it's right down the road from us. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, so App State isn't that far either. Yahoo! Well, Asheville is a very nice place, and I'm not so sure East Tennessee is as nice of a place, but you are not. It's definitely an eclectic, uh, interesting kind of place. I don't know if you were here at all in your time at ETSU. I've been to Asheville. It's very eclectic. Lots of lots of hipper, hipsters and hippies all mixed together. Um, definitely nobody really stands out in Asheville, that's for sure. Yeah, we have something called a muscle support group so that if only one of us goes into a group where there are too many hippies, we know that we have to go in a pack so as not to be disappointed. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Mike, in, in this field of ours pertaining – namely to exercise and to nutrition, where seemingly everyone is an expert uh, on their Instagram account or elsewhere, uh, it just seems increasingly important to be able to tease out nonsense or uh, non-important nuance and really ground yourself in the science behind what we're discussing. So I'd like to just lead off with, uh, with the question, how do you feel your education as truly an expert in this field has laid the foundation for your success with Renaissance periodization and just what you do uh, with daily operations. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, indispensable, I think, because if you really um, want to program, understand, change things at a very deep level, you have to understand them at a deep level. And it's really difficult to get a lot of insight and a lot of depth of comprehension if you don't have the depth of understanding behind it. So for example, you know, if you see a program, it's, you know, three, seven, five reps or something like that, uh, you can just have no knowledge of it at all, uh, depth wise, and just know that three by five is the program your coach sent you. And because your coach sent you that program, that is good. So if your grandmother asks you, so Sonny, why are you doing three by five and not three by four? Apparently she hung out with Tudor Bampa back in the day or something. She was a, you know, periodization groupie. And there are many of those. And um, you're going to be like, well, 
you know, coach says, you know, you're going to be, uh, you know, the, you know, Adam Sandler from the water boy, you know, coach told me to pretend, right? Like you got no, no idea why it's good. And then if you are yourself trying to coach or write programs, the way you're going to write programs is you're just going to put down well, three by five, because that's what coach said. And an athlete's going to say, well, oh, it's too much for me, or it's not enough, or people are going to get hurt, or they're not going to get better. And you're going to have no idea how to modify anything other than a sort of like dogmatic, monolithic three by five. Now, if you get some understanding, take a certification course, whatever, you can understand that, you know, uh, lower reps and higher weights tend to promote strength. And um, that's good. And then now you know why three by five works. And you may sort of surmise that, you know, four by three and six by four and all that stuff could work similarly. But um, when someone asks you, well, why does this work? Or can you write me a different kind of program? Or is another kind of program with higher reps and weights going to interfere with that? then you might not know because you don't know the actual mechanisms behind what's going on. You just know what's going on, but you don't know why. If you get a whole bunch of graduate-level educations and all this other stuff, you can not only know what the program is, that it is good, you can know why it is good, how it is good, and the very molecular and cellular basis for why it operates. Not only does this allow you to critique it extensively, you can modify it to the individual, and you can be creative in the true sense of coming up with your own programs derived on the very principles of physiology that can be way better than anything that just has a series of numbers that is always set in stone. So you can make truly great programming, modified exactly to the individual's needs, auto-regulated, and all of that good stuff. So if you want to be the best possible trainer, coach, programmer, etc., that you can be at a completely different level, then going very far in your education really pays off. It's one of those uh, sorts of things that, you know, um, you know, back in the day, uh, some of the uh, folks that didn't like school or uh, really unfocused kids would would say, you know, where, when are we ever going to need this? You know what I mean? Um, you know, let's say you're learning algebra or or, or even something like calculus, right? Um, you know, people say, well, where are we ever going to need this? Well, you know, if you work for Raytheon and your job is to program missile defense systems, you're going to need all the calculus you, you have because your job is to build artificial intelligence war machines. And you're going to be like, you know, I need this. Look at that thing over there. I, I built the fucking Terminator and that thing's real now. <laughs> That's why I needed it, right? But if you're going to, you know, do a job in which your intellect is not required or you just want to do a job poorly, then the answer is no, you don't need all that school. So uh, school is, is super great if you need it. And if you want to be a really good coach, programmer, et cetera, you're going to want a whole lot of school. And for those who may not have the time or resources to do so, and they ask us, where do we, we start with these endeavors and, and with gaining baseline knowledge outside of perhaps even just listening to these podcasts, we often recommend the scientific principles of strength training that you co-authored. And where I'd like to start with that, Dr. Mike, is you know I, when I was receiving my bachelor's in, in kinesiology, I recall a single chapter, it was detailing probably seven to nine uh, principles. And I, I recall variance, overload, specificity, but never at that time, and this was in uh, 2009, 2010, had access to programs that were explicitly talking about this or to people in the field that were making these connections uh, for myself as a, as a rising coach uh, or as an athlete trying to understand my own plan, where it now seems like you have helped create or bridge that, that gap between what is written in the textbook, although at that time it seems like it was almost only available for the cardiovascular realm. One of our, our people who works for our company, who is involved with hypertrophy and strength, says he doesn't know if he'll live to see the uh, literature benefits 
from his own research, just because, and this was as he was a grad student talking, it was so focused around cardiovascular training. But to now see this available in just such a short time since then is remarkable. You know, um, first of all, thank you so much. Um, it's, um, that really is, uh, it's a huge compliment to receive. Um, it really is a really cool compliment because that's, that was kind of our goal with scientific principles of strength training is to really bridge the gap between an exercise physiology textbook and programs designed to work in the weight room. Yeah, that effective, it was very effective in doing so undoubtedly. Well, thank you. Thanks. Um, I'll say that, um, because one of the reasons we wrote that book is because all of us were pissed. <laughs> um, we were pissed that the, I'm sure you remember your own kinesiology book, kind of just had a couple of examples, you know, specific adaptation to impose demands, kind of this really general sort of broad brush strokes of, oh yeah, training science is a thing. And here are some examples of things training scientists are concerned with. You know, it's almost kind of like the, um, if you, if you like look at a general like intro to biology textbook, they're going to talk about imaging and a PET scan. They're going to have a picture of a scientist with a PET scanner and be like, here's a scientist, here's a PET scan. Positrons are involved. Anyway, moving on. And you're like, okay, that doesn't really tell me much. So it is certainly nothing applied to learn from that. I think that's kind of what we're usually getting with strength training science from textbooks. So um, our, the reason we were, myself and James Hoffman and Chad Wesley Smith, pissed is because we desperately wanted a language and a method to understand and to teach why some kinds of programs were better than others. We, we definitely um, didn't... Um, what, is that, what is that one Marvel that came out last year? Uh, the Magician Dude... Yeah, the Benedict Cumberbatch Marvel. Yeah. Um, uh, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, yes, Doctor Strange. So it was almost kind of like, so, So you know, before Doctor Strange received his extensive education in the mythical arts or whatever, um, mystical arts, he, you know, you would just see magic tricks and people doing crazy shit and be like, well, there's another weird magic thing. There's another weird magic thing. But like what they taught him at that academy is that magic has like a structure to it and rules. And if you learn the rules and you learn the structure, you're not just memorizing a bunch of different spells. You're actually tapping in to the underlying characteristics of the stuff. And then you can manipulate it to get what you need out of it. That doesn't give you this ability to do anything you want because, you know, things have prices and consequences and there's limits. But if you understand that landscape, you can start to do what you want to the best of your abilities in the situation. Just the same way, when we kind of formalized all these rules in scientific principles of strength training, we were basically teaching people how to do the magic of strength training. It's not a bunch of different programs with random names, just like it's not a bunch of different spells that conjure different things. It is there. There is a structure to the stuff, and if you learn the structure, you can manipulate the variables to get the most you can out of a program for a desired effect. It's no longer a guessing game because there are now rules. We had to have that. Because we were so pissed that it wasn't around. <laughs> That's the number one reason we wrote the book. I, I, I recall not having that, but being grateful for the foundational sciences that I was receiving. Because like you said, it was invaluable, even though certainly not to the extent of your own uh, personal education. Although a lot of our athletes now, who, who are students themselves, feel like they have this good foundation but they now have you and all of RP and others following in this wake to help tie things together. And I think RP's mission of bringing this style edu or, or just really this education in full to the masses 
in just really, I mean, how long has it been? The first time that I, I heard about RP was I, I worked with Muscle Driver USA, the group of weightlifters, and it was must 2011, 2012, and the name didn't even seem to be on the radar. And now it, it's just totally blown up. For sure. And, you know, I, I think there's kind of two parts of RP. There's the applied part that, like, look, if you don't want to know anything, you just want results, great. We got templates, we got all that stuff. We'll take the thinking out for you <laughs> because we've applied these principles ourselves to generate a structure. But um, the other part of RP is, like, if you really want to learn, how this stuff works and you want to alter it to your own exact goals and needs, then we got that covered too. Um, the, the number one reason that we cover that is because of our own frustration uh, of having not had nearly as much. We got a taste. I especially got a taste for myself in graduate school studying under Dr. Mike Stone. Uh, he introduced us. We had a pretty lengthy series of courses about probably four or five of these training principles. And he alluded to the others and a couple of the others we sort of derived ourselves. But <clears throat> it was the first time that I had really heard him basically after every training conversation, he would justify why a program looked a certain way because of this and that principle. You know, the, the last thing you ever want to hear from a coach or especially a scientist is why do why should you do this? Well, just because. That's how we've done it or whatever. Dr. Stone just absolutely hated that because he needed a reason. And he would say, now the reason we're accumulating volumes and intensities here is because of the overload principle. And we would think, okay, what's the overload principle? The overload principle says that in order to get better, your st stimulus has to be challenging and it has to get progressively more challenging. Well, of course you have to make things harder because otherwise you violate the overload principle and then you're just not getting better. It made perfect sense. So we basically took Dr. McStone's work that he taught us, he's the director of the program, and we applied it for the first, his, his area of interest was mostly weightlifting and uh, uh, throwing sports, uh, track and field. But we applied it very formally to just plain old strength development in long form. We, we took everything apart, put everything back together to really do a principles-based derivation so that anyone with, well, probably a good deal of patience, it's a fucking 400-page long book, uh, <laughs> anyone who is you know, intellectually ready to commit that kind of time and effort can really start to understand, okay, why is a good program for the following X, Y, and Z purpose why is it good? And how can I make my own program? Because like I sort of alluded to earlier, there's a very big gap between doing a program that you know is good versus now you're the coach. An athlete comes to you and they say, I want to get strong. And now you build them a program. Driving a race car and building a race car are two very, very different things. And in order to go from one to the other, you're going to have to learn a lot of engineering, basically. And that's kind of what we attempted to do with Scientific Principles and with a bunch of the other books. Because we're just like... Um, we, we, at RP, we really hate like gurus and stuff like that, and just like just because kind of reasoning. Uh, so we just we essentially designed our entire. Nick and I literally committed to uh, starting the company years before we actually started it because we got so tired of answering people. Like we would train in New York City as personal trainers, and other people would ask us like, "So what kind of training philosophy do you have?" And we're like, "Science." And they're like, "Well, come on, like, so who do you follow?" And we're like, "What? <laughs> That's not how things work, you know? You know, engineers don't ask you like who you follow. They're like, well, let me see your drawings, you know? <laughs> like it's pretty much that simple. So that's kind of where we came from, and." I, hopefully it's having somewhat of an effect. Oh, I, I think so. I think so. And it sounds like this specific time uh, at ETSU was an important one, especially if Dr. Stone was educating you and challenging you guys with these foundational principles, though there seemed to have been perhaps uh, a 
disagreement upon or dissonance between that side of things and the practical application of it in the strength side of things, or perhaps from coaches in that same area, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, you bet. So, um, Dr. Stone uh, is one of the people that started the war maybe 40 years ago, yeah. uh, the first light um, of uh, science in coaching against tradition in coaching. Now, in sort of in an ideal world, the two would meld together where science couldn't pick up the slack. We just didn't know enough. Tradition would uh, remain, or at least tradition filtered through reasonable training uh, understandings. But the thing is, is that when Dr. Stone started this fight that we're sort of continuing for him, or we have the honor to continue for him, um, or alongside him, uh, when he started this fight, tradition was everything. There was no science in sport. There was barely an attempt to think. So the idea that you would question why a coach was doing something was already kind of anathema. And then the idea that you would demand logical reasoning or science was just completely insane. Coach had years of experience. He kind of felt, you know, his knee kind of, you know, high pressure center came through. His knee kind of felt funny. So you do squats that day. You know, it was kind of like the coach had accumulated this wisdom over the years. And of course, wisdom of studying our other coaches and now new stuff and now would apply it and make athletes better. Now, the thing is, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, yeah, wisdom is a hell of a thing, and there's nothing that beats accumulated experience of an intelligent coach. But science is really a super micro-focused lens of the accumulated experience of all coaches put together, plus a really micro-filtered view of, okay, we're assuming these things are the way they are. Let's go to the laboratory, really clear out the clutter, study them in isolation to find out what's going on at a very deep level. So science is kind of like an even more general, even more overarching truth than even the wisdom of any one coach, because any one coach could have had a little bit of a biased understanding or misunderstood some things. Science in general, especially over the long term, tends to clear most of that out. So then there's this war, sort of, between, you know, traditional coaches, when they're not scientifically literate or have no interest in becoming so, they become defensive, right? Um, And in an ideal world, you would come to coaches, you would uh, attempt to offer your services as a sports scientist, so that for when they are not sure what to do, you could give them a scientific approach. You could give them scientific tools, which you would take care of for them. You would be sort of like a kind of like a magician, like a mystical advisor, right? You like put on your your robe with suns and moons on it, and that's what I wore to training normally. But that's just how I dress. Um, and you know, your magician hat, and you would sort of uh, sort of give them the scientific approach on stuff. Ideally, in the real world, there's quite a bit of conflict that arises because coaches like to know their stuff and they like to be the master of their domain. And when you're telling them, you know, they're like, well, I'm going to try to do this. What do you think? And you're like, ah, and they're like, well, you know what? <laughs> That's the way things worked and you can go straight to hell. And you're like, oh, that was productive. So, so there's definitely one of those things where uh, not only is it important for coaches to know science, but the conversation of how you get them involved to that is also important. One of the things I developed very acutely at East Tennessee State in having to take the Dr. Mike Stone philosophy and be the intermediary between many coaches and that philosophy of science, um, I, I developed a very keen aptitude for uh, for negotiation and uh, for diplomacy. Diplomacy was what we called it back then. So, um, and, and it was, I still carry those abilities to this day. They're very valuable in basically saying, you know, hey, coach, you got a lot of stuff going on. Fundamentally, you're doing great. You're right about most of the stuff if you want. We got some cool tools we can give you an advantage. Uh, you want to take a look? That's great. And usually coaches want to win. So they're like, all right, what do you got? And they're like, okay, so you see how you're accumulating volumes over the course of three months? Maybe you can try over the course of two months, take a little bit of an easy week, but that's going to just drop the fatigue. 
make your athletes a bit fresher and give you a better chance. And then you say, now, won't that make them a little worse? And then you say, well, you know, as long as you do enough to maintain their abilities during that time, they're not going to get any worse. They're just going to reduce their fatigue. You give them an example. Like, remember that one time we did a little less that week. They came back like fire and brimstone the next week. They're like, oh, you know, it's a point. Let's get a shot in the off season to see if it works. It works in the off season. They're like, wow, this is great. They gain a little bit more of your trust. Next time they'll come to you and they'll say, now we got an in-season program. I laid it out kind of like you told me. How do you think I did a good job or a bad job? You say, okay, you actually did great. Or you say, you know, let's move these two weeks over here, move those two weeks over there. And now because you put yourself once, they're like, hmm, okay, great. And all of a sudden, things are going well. Um, myself and my colleague, um, Dr. Ashley Kavanaugh, who also works for RP, um, has a hell of a recruiting field for RP is TSU. Um, but uh, her and I were uh, the sports scientists for Coach Lindsay Devine at ETSU for volleyball. And Lindsay was, uh, was a very, very um, just like a meticulous, hard-headed person in, in the best of ways. Like she is a one-woman wrecking crew, her way or the highway. But she's also sharp and she also wants to win. And by the time Ashley and I had s- sort of served our three years under her, um, she basically let us uh, have as much input as we wanted into her annual plan. She cleared every decision with us. She was like, take a look at this plan. What do you think? Change whatever you need. Let's get down to something that works. She gave us her input. We gave ours. It was a totally cooperative process. And it took years to get to that level of trust and understanding. We had to prove ourselves multiple times. But by the end of that process, uh, we won the conference. <laughs> and because we we had uh, the the volleyball team as a, as a set of, uh, you know, another waterway quote, finely tuned athletic machines. Uh, and it was, it was a beautiful thing. But that kind of coach-athlete and coach-sports scientist relationship, uh, it takes a while because a lot of coaches, uh, sports scientists, kind of a new trick. It's a new thing. And they sort of think, well, why the hell are you even here? When you prove yourself and you speak to them normally, calmly as a human being and try to explain the general principles to them, that works. Because just real quick, none of this stuff is backwards thinking. Say, look, coach, you got to admit that after doing so much, there's such a thing as too much. And they're like, okay, yeah, totally. They're like, all we're trying to do is make sure you don't do too much. So we're going to take a break here and there to make sure fatigue doesn't get out of hand so you, the girls can stay sharp on the court. And they go, uh, okay, we're not going to make them wusses, right? Like, no, no, like it's still a shitload of training. It's just not so much that it gets them hurt or beat up or whatever. And, you know, all the coaches were players themselves. They remember times of high fatigue in their own careers and how much they sucked when that happened. So they go, you know what, that's a good point. Let's try your way and see what happens. And all of a sudden, just a real-world normal explanation you gave to the coach. They gave it a shot. It worked. And then later on, you're part of the team, and you get a lot of say. And the thing is, is this comes back to understanding the principles. If you don't understand the principles of training, how the hell are you supposed to explain to a coach who has no scientific education, just a coaching education, what it is that you're advantaging them? Like, you know, how are you supposed to explain anything? Like, well, this is the way we do things, because Dr. Mike Stone said. And they're like, why is that? Like, well, because Dr. Mike Stone said, that's just not going to work. Luckily, Dr. Mike Stone actually taught us sports science, so we never had to say that. We're like, well, this is because fatigue accumulates, and we could put that into the most plain language because we actually understood it. That's the beauty of a principles-based approach. You can explain it to basically anyone at a simple level, and they're like, oh, that makes sense. They try it. It works. And then all of a sudden, you're doing advanced things with their team, and you no longer have to to explain uh, in simple terms every single thing you do because the level of trust develops. And and I, I don't know if you were aware of it at the time. Uh, I, in, in that, I, I'm not aware if you were coaching your own athletes at the same time, but that's the same, at least it sounds to me, type of trust and negotiation that a coach needs to have with their athletes around the topic that I want to bridge into, which I think was uh, a big uh, question that you guys were trying to answer and find a solution to was, why do we do, why do, we do too much? What, why is why are our athletes seeking to do too much or 
what can explain why we've done too much and how to course correct. But does that sound like there's a large connection between that negotiation style with the coaches and that which you have with your athletes? 100%. Because athletes, especially so in the, in, the, in the free Western world, which is luckily now a bigger part of the world than ever, athletes are voluntarily engaged in sport. They can just leave anytime they want. <laughs> they just pack up their bags and go. And as a matter of fact, in, especially in places like the United States where it's less about being on a national team and more about just doing the sport for a high level of excellence in your own weightlifting club or in your own community, um, you've got a lot of choices as to who to hire for coaches. And there's plenty of coaches and a lot of them are really good. You, know? um, you can go anywhere. And if the coach, if you're intellectually curious and the coach isn't explaining why they have you doing certain things, you'll just go to the next coach that will. So it's really important to be able to explain to your athletes, hey, listen, this is why we're doing stuff. And on that note of doing too much, that's a big part. Uh, so, so I have a lot to say on that if you want to get into it. Uh, uh, I have a lot to say on, on why athletes want to do too much. I, I, would, I would definitely love to explore that. Um, and just from what I've heard you speak about in the past, it seems like there are multiple angles and to you know allow you the, the floor here what I've kind of taken from from you and I and upon reflection am in agreement upon is that there seems to be social media factors what others are doing uh, just simple misconceptions like those coaches you explained about how we get better uh, like that anything beyond what we can recover from just improves mental toughness maybe. And then another one, the uh, ego. Uh, so do you, do you see those three things as being some of the major contributors or are there others? Yeah. Well, so again, I think there's one more that bears mention, and it is a very understandable temptation. It is the assumption that the more you do, the better you get. That is actually a true assumption, but it's only mm-hmm. true to a point. So, you know, it's, it, I really don't like when um, the school of, of thought gets too much credit and turns into minimalism when coaches try to say, you know, you got to just really do the least that's going to get you better or the less is better. You know, it's just like, um, you know, now and again, you see a commercial for something and they're like, less is better. More is not always better. More is not better. You're like, yeah, but fucking more is better. You know, like, uh, you know, it just is, you know, if I like pasta, more pasta is better. If I like cars, more cars is better. Try to talk a guy who collects Lamborghinis into giving you a free one of his 10 Lamborghinis because, well, I guess nine is good, right? It's even better than 10. Just give me a Lambo. Right? This is not going to work. So athletes know that the more they train, the better they get. And, and they know this not only at a physiological level, but they know it in a, at an emotional level too. There is a catharsis that occurs with training where you sort of sacrifice your earthly um, aversion to pain and the need to be able to use your body for the greater good, the sort of super ego goal of ascending to the next level of athletic performance. And, and this kind of almost this religious dynamic where, you know, the gods of training asks you or ask you, how much can you sacrifice to me so that I can make you better? And you say, oh, dear lords of training, everything. I will give you my entire physiology, right? The thing is, is that that sounds cool. And it's largely true. However, your body has finite capacity to recover. And even within that, it has a even more limited finite capacity to improve from training. So what am I saying here? The more training, let's say we started zero training. The more training we add on, the better you get. Up until it takes so much effort to just recover you that you're not actually getting any better from more training. You're just having a tougher and tougher time recovering. So all of the extra effort, all the extra body systems that would normally adapt you are now just focused on recovering you. After we reach 
Past that point, we get to the point where we've saturated even all of the recovery systems, and we're actively getting worse. <laughs> like We're degrading our ability over time because we've overwhelmed our recovery systems, right? Um, for example, if you take a, a town in the desert, a, a vibrant desert town, and you change the, the climate to to where you know you uh, introduce some rain. Right, if you introduce some rain, they're going to make adaptations to the town. They're going to cover their roofs. People are going to start to wear umbrellas. They're maybe going to angle the streets and introduce a sewer system. And these are all positive adaptations that deal with the rain very effectively. But if you just put a tidal wave over the town, it's just going to destroy the town. And you know, but I thought there was a linear relationship between how much water we poured on the town and how many cool adaptations it saw. Well, yeah, to a point until they can't literally have enough drainage pipes and everything clogged up and everyone's drowning all of a sudden so um if you can you know so there's that temptation for athletes that they uh there's this assumption of linearity between how much i do and how much better i get and assumption is true to a point and you have to basically communicate to them that look that point is real and then the other stuff you come in magnify the problem where they go well so first of all i know the more i do the better i get also, I see these people on Instagram and they're doing a shitload, right? Also, I'm usually doing a lot and my ego won't let me do less, you know, because I, and then there's that cathartic element too, where like, I don't feel truly alive until I'm delayed onset muscle sore to the point of where I should just be in a hospital, right? And that all, that stuff muddles everything. And then, I, I, but, but I think there are really good ways uh, to bring that back into check and get the athletes to do less. The one way I don't recommend, because it's sort of antithetical to the ethos of sport, is the kind of wussification, the wussy roadway. Um, is you know you can't talk to athletes like they're kindergartners. You can't speak to them like a kindergarten teacher. I would love that because I think kindergarten is an adorable part of life. So I would love to say, now listen, Billy, you're going to do too much, and that's going to get you hurt. You can't really talk to athletes like that because they're going to be like, I need a warrior, damn it. You know, I I need a coach that's been through shit and hell and all this stuff. So what you can tell them is, you know, the approach I like to take is to say, look. The fact that you want catharsis from this, the fact that you want training to be therapy, the fact that you need to train hard to feel good about yourself is a weakness. What you should be trying to do is to be a machine. A machine has no emotions. A machine does only what is necessary to get the best results. A machine understands its parameters of operation. It understands what is not enough and what is too much. So what we're going to do, you and I, athlete and coach, is we are going to find out how your parameters work. We are going to reverse engineer you. We're going to find out your maximum recoverable volume. We're going to find out your minimum effective volume. We're going to train you between those two values because we're not training you. We're dosing you. We are making an appropriate, finite, statistically correct input to engineer you into a fucking killer robot. So when you go out on a weightlifting platform, you bend the bar and throw it at one of the judges, pierce them right through their chest, and that's the weightlifting meat. Okay, back up. We'll do a couple of good snatches between there and then. But the idea is to not... It's just the temptation when athletes are sort of doing too much is to try to rein them back. And that, that, that the language and the feel of that is just, oh, we're losing, we're retreating. We're not retreating, we're optimizing. And I think that kind of thing does stick with some athletes. They're like, wow, I'm a machine? Like, yes, you want to perform like a machine, you're going to do what it takes. You're not going to come in here seeking therapy. A real good athlete does as much as they can. The best athlete does as much as is needed to get the result they're going after. You know, I, I think in, in this tidal wave analogy, uh, right after a tidal wave, I had imagined that though the city wasn't ready for it before, it would do things in the wake of it, no pun intended, to be able to protect itself in the future and kind of know what it's up against. And would you say that 
in this analogy, as we pertain this tidal wave to exceeding the MRV, that in a sense, it's important, if not necessary or unavoidable to exceed it, to have to know where it is, even if you didn't have the intentions of saying, well, I'm going to just try my best to stay so close without the wheels coming off. It almost seems like the athlete's rite of passage, or just if you're training long enough, it's going to happen if you're seeking greatness in your sport, that you hit that spot and that the tidal wave occurs. Yeah, I think most people hit their MRV at least a couple times by accident. The I do think that for intermediate and advanced athletes, I actually think beginners should be kept the hell away from that for a variety of reasons. I can extrapolate on if you like, but um, for, for, for predominantly learning technique without um, interference for bad technique, relying on high fatigue levels of learning technique. Like if you're set, snatching for sets of 10, isn't going to teach you how to snatch, it's going to teach you how to survive. Um, you're going to learn very poor snatch technique doing that. Um, so uh, I think that you know beginners should be kept away from their MRVs, but intermediate and advanced are going to have to start to feel them. The intelligent thing to do after the tidal wave comes is to know how the sky looked and to know how the horizon looked before the tidal wave came, know when it's coming and do the appropriate things to make sure that it doesn't hit you and or when it does hit that you're ready for it and you productively sort of surf on it versus just being bowled over by it. Um, the unintelligent thing to do is to think that the tidal wave is just an awesome thing and to just have it come over and over and, over and sweep your city away, so to speak, and you know, sort of delete a bunch of your adaptation. So uh, if you're ready for it psychologically and from a sports science perspective, you're ready to interpret it, every now and again getting to your MRV is a good thing. But uh, MRV is something that we want to flirt with. It's not something we want to stick around with um, because it's by definition unsustainable and it eventually will get you hurt. So it's one of those things like, yeah, good athletes should definitely know what it is, but I think they should be, in an ideal sense, prepared, or at least at the time that they're experiencing this overreaching, be told by their coach what's going on. Notice how you feel. Notice how you're performing. This is what we're using this phase of your training for. And then we're going to be using uh, these other methods to back away from this and so on and so forth so that you have something to take away from it other than, wow, that hurt a lot or, wow, that's how real men train and I should just try to do that all the time. Now, the idea of gaining momentum and things getting harder as the training cycle, as the mesocycle evolves, seems to be a very novel concept, a new way of almost thinking to most athletes. Do you uh, find that you have to um, kind of, how do I say, let them know what these uh, cloudy skies and circumstances could be that precede the tidal wave so that we build enough momentum to get stronger and then recover without the wheels coming off. So as to say, are there any more like, because I know you have and RP has uh, quantitative measurements, uh, especially helpful for bodybuilders per major muscle groups, uh, you know, numbers that are attached to uh, reps per mesocycle, per body part, but are there more qualitative ways that we can know if that storm is about to hit us as we gain momentum or if we've actually hit it, we're just so used to never gaining momentum and always getting smashed by the tidal wave? Yeah, totally. I mean, so one of the things 
about learning what those antecedents are and knowing the landscape before the tidal wave hits is actually being in that dry area. <laughs> and uh, you got to reduce your training volume first to actually feel what that feels like. Um, some people only do that for competitions and when they taper. Some people don't need taper for competitions, but they don't know there. Um, and then they finally feel great. And then they say to themselves, well, no, I only want to feel like this when I'm competing. And the rest of the time, I'm just going to smash myself into bits. So I think it's it, once you've talked the athlete into backing off a lot, you can slowly dope up their volume more and more and more, or their intensity more and more and more, and then they can feel every rung of the ladder all the way up to their MRV and know what that feels like. In the sport of weightlifting, per se, that actually has a lot of um, feelings associated with it. Um, one of the f- most fatigue-sensitive abilities is the ability to learn new techniques fluidly. Just after that, a little bit less fatigue sensitive, but still very sensitive, is the ability to express uh, fine motor or advanced gross motor patterns very uh, fluidly. And if you're more fatigued and more fatigued, it gets difficult to do that. So for example, in the sport of weightlifting, let's say you know the snatch and clean jerk pretty well. If your coach introduces a snatch from blocks that you're not used to that block height, and it starts to feel pretty smooth right away, and you feel super athletic, you're probably at a very good level of fatigue, not very high. If it just the movement just intuitively makes no damn sense, rep after rep after rep, you might be in a level of high fatigue where you know you just feel like you have butterfingers. Basically, you just don't feel athletic. You don't feel your swag. You know, um, one of the most um, uh, one of the kind of intuitive ways I could describe what this feeling is like, without even referring to sport much, is um, you know, you ever watch any videos of parkour, like free running? Or like parkour or breakdancing, it's people moving in this rhythmic, awesome pattern. They're anticipating obstacles and they're just, they're flowing. It's just the purest sense. They put their hands where they're supposed to be. And if you've ever moved like that in any sport, it's just that Michael Jordan tongue out, dunking a basketball kind of feeling where you can do no wrong. Like you always know where to go. Your balance is great. Your, your hands and feet are moving where you want. You watch a video of yourself lifting and you're like, oh my God, what is this? The Beijing games going on over here, folks? Look at this kind of movement, right? And you feel it deep down that you feel athletic. As your fatigue accumulates, you start to feel less athletic. Your strength may be there. Even your speed may be there. You just don't feel athletic. And where we catch this in weightlifting a lot is the transitional positions. So I'm sure you've seen this as a coach and as a lifter. Um, sometimes you are missing uh, missing catching the snatch or turning over the bar in the clean and jerk. Like you'll have a guy do the most awesome clean ever. He's just ripping the shit off the ground, but he'll lose it at the transition. And you kind of look at your lifter and you're like, what the hell is that? And he's like, ah, he gives you this look like, I don't know. <laughs> the bar just kind of went one way and I kind of went the other. And I just don't have a feel for where that fucking barbell is or where my body is. There's not a strength problem. Like if you rack that clean, he would have stood out no problem. There is a motor coordination problem. And the way that looks is it looks sloppy. And the way that feels is it feels the opposite of parkour looks. It feels unathletic. It's like you try to duck under the telephone pole and you just hit your head. And you're like, well... <laughs> That's how that feels, right? And sometimes lifting does feel like that. Now, we all have our bad days, and some of us just aren't athletic as others, but if day after day you're consistently feeling unathletic compared to your normal, you're probably accumulating fatigue. If you keep going, eventually your power will fall, your speed will fall. Then you're having trouble moving fast. How do we see it? So basically, if you hit your squats and your presses and your pulls for heavy reps, you're still able to do them and you're even still able to hit PRs, but you're just not moving quickly. Your jerks start to become a problem. Your uh, power position moves. Your second pulls become a problem. Your speed just isn't there. Uh, that's after the technique stuff. That's even higher level of fatigue. And then at the highest levels of fatigue that a weightlifter typically experience, their strength starts to be a problem. So not only does your snatch look like total shit, 
But when you get under the bar, you like fail to stand up with it. And people are like, what the hell is going on? You're like, I'm just out. <laughs> I'm out of gas. Or your snatches went okay, but your, your heavy squats just went t- total hell. You're just not strong enough. Then your fatigue is really high. You've passed every one of your maximum recoverable volumes for the different fitness characteristics. And it's almost certainly time for deload. If an athlete knows that progression and they know what to look for, it's no longer like a, con- you know, athletes have a confusion about why they're not hitting lifts. But if they're predictably missing lifts on technique versus strength, and it's not a technique mistake, it's just they're continuously being butterfingers, basically. Now we know it might be a fatigue issue, and we know maybe some time away is going to solve that problem. And athletes know their responses along the way. They can become really intuitive guides to themselves of how fatigued they are, and they can tell you as the coach of themselves when it's time to push it and when it's time to back off. Yeah, so what we've uh, noticed, because early on, right, as these uh, as as you and RP as a whole made sense for coaches these training principles in practice we're like man how are we going to get people on board with this like how do we tell them that they have to put away that uh, that catharsis and that that um ego so what we actually did we, we tried to create a culture around it in that well we have this one model motto which is wait for the cookies and i don't know how valid this study is or, or if you've heard of it, but these studies were, speaking of kindergarten, these kindergartners were given cookies and they were told if they just waited a second, they'd be rewarded with more. And then evidently they tracked these kids and those who were able to resist the instant gratification and ultimately get two cookies, went on to hire, have higher GPAs, salaries, blah, blah, blah. Whether this is true or not, we just kind of took this story and made it what we were about um so that people could see that it's not just uh one person who's having success with it but it's actually just the science of how it's done properly and using these models not only are we able to optimize individuals performances uh in crossfit weightlifting and powerlifting but we're able to help people from an injury resolution standpoint as well, simply using the same principles. And I think what sometimes people have a hard time separating is, oh, well, this is, um, this is kind of like soft or it's, we are, the word we use is sustainable. And I think you can have uh, a practice that optimizes results, but that considers that we have to have a practice that is also sustainable if you want to participate in your sport competitively for the long term. Um, so just so you know, in using these simple principles, we've helped individuals put off surgeries to major joints in their body, just reduce chronic pains, all by simply reeling them back in, finding the minimum effective volume they need, where they may not even be sore from their exercise, and then give where to go. So yes, it's optimizing, but I also think the beauty of it is that it's also corrective and can help with athletes' wellness overall. I think I think that's great. And by the way, that study, from what I understood, or that, that there's really a body of literature on that. Um, it, it, it is valid, um, very very valid. So I think there is is absolutely a ton. Uh, of great stuff in developing that culture, and just to put you know you know take take it away from the I love kindergarten stuff. Just to for the maybe the more hardcore listeners or athletes that are more into hardcore approach, there's nothing wrong with that's also super cool. Um, think about the most dangerous kind of predator, or the most dangerous kind of villain in a horror movie. It's the patient one, 
Right. Um, have you ever seen, uh, actually, funny enough, Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger, the original 1986? Mm. How did you know shit was really bad? When he built the trap for the Predator and he's like, come on, kill me. And the guy goes around the shit. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I'm going to die. <laughs> because this was, with the Predator, didn't just run. You know, what would a wild animal have done? He would just run right into the trap because there was Arnold. There he was, ready to die, and he would just got killed. But the Predator looked, and he started looking around the contraption. And he's like, eh, this looks like a trap. He was patient. Patience is scary. If you know, you know, if you are, let's say, playing the attempts game at a weightlifting meet, and you're jumping up attempts against a competitor who you know is really good, and you're looking over at them to see if they're going to jump with you, and their coach looks at them and just nods their head, and they go, mm-hmm, and they just sit there with a towel over their head, and they don't do anything. You're like, oh my god, I'm not even being taken seriously. I'm, <laughs> what's this guy opening up with, 400 kilos? And hey, maybe that's the case, right? But he's patient. And that kind of patience, you know, the thing is people like to sort of deify this culture of being a warrior in the gym. And a lot of times a warrior culture turns into this expressive teenage kind of child rebellion instead, where it's like, you don't love me, dad, I'm going to my room. Like that equivalent of training being like, I'm going to do sets of five till I throw up because I got bullied. <laughs> like, okay, there's just something to that, but it's not exactly somebody I'd be afraid of a competition. You know what I mean? Like not somebody that's dealing with a lot of issues. I feel for them, but you know, the person I'm really afraid of is someone who is meticulous, who is calculating, who said, you know, I didn't work as hard as I could last week so I could bring the fire and hell on earth this week. And I'm like, oh, fuck, that's not good but that's the person you want to be and if you communicate to athletes that way all of a sudden you know man there's no better place to be than that cold calculating killer machine that does only what they need and isn't impulsive impulsivity is cool but it only takes you so far and and that's where kind of getting at a lot of this training beyond mrv is simply the expression of childlike impulsivity it is i gotta do what it takes to win like that's nice it's a cool meme to share on instagram but you know, there's a lot of training wisdom you can't really share Instagram and kind of be patient. Maybe you can, you know, a picture of a lion uh, waiting for the last gazelle to drop off of the, you know, uh, it's another very easy analogy. A good hunter or a good lion, like a lioness, a female lion, she doesn't run into a herd of buffalo and get fucking murdered because it's just what would happen. You know, like a 800, you know, primo-conditioned male reproductive age buffalo are just going to slaughter a lion every day of the week. It's one-on-one. It's not even a close contest. What do lions do? Patient. They work around the herd. They find the buffalo that has a broken leg or the one that's 80 fucking years old and full of years, whatever conversion that is, right? It's like dog years, I guess. Um, then they strike. They're wise. The patient. They know the right time to go. They don't just – can you imagine the lion equivalent of like a daddy emotional teenager like, I'm going into the heart of buffalo. I don't care what happens. <laughs> like, okay. So I run over and all of a sudden we're back to Lion King. Mufasa's dead. And I'm crying in the theater when I was 10 years old. And, that, and that, that's real talk because I really did see Lion King and I cried when Mufasa died. And by the way, I never recovered and I actually don't even like the movie Lion King because I don't think it's an entertaining movie because as soon as Mufasa died, I could never enjoy it after that. Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry that we, we brought it back to that painful emotion, but I do think it is a very good <laughs> analogy. Um, oh, that, that, is, that is so awesome. And I think, you know, just as a, as a coach, when I, I, I think – you are talking to your athlete, there should be this honest communication of you, you both, you know, the, the athlete has hired the coach, the coach is working for the athlete. You both want to win together. It, it looks good for both. So why would, I'm not sure what the alternative is. <laughs> what was that? I'm not sure what the alternative is. You know I mean? Of course. Oh yeah. It's like, why would we, as, why would the coach in, 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 and maybe, you know, as a listener, you've never experienced this because you might be flying solo with this and you've had no one to tell you when it's too much or when, when we deload and, uh, and hopefully they're, they're saying those things and, and programming those things at the right times. But 
we, we want the athletes as, as the person writing the program and, and kind of guiding this to succeed. So it's not uh, any means of, you know, having them draw the short stick. It's just, I think, uh, this, as we say, wait for the cookies kind of new mindset that you have to take that creates a smarter athlete that challenges the athlete in ways that they can grow psychologically uh, to know that while more is more, too much maybe is not more. Um, and, and I think that that, as you kind of mentioned in your time, learning from, from uh Dr. Stone and working with these coaches with kind of the origin of this all is that it takes time. It takes trust. And I, I think that coaches at the same time shouldn't thrust it on their athletes to say, uh, why can't you uh, deal with this deload? Like what, what, why is there any psychological um, preoccupation with this at all? Where if I'm being honest with myself and as I say to my athletes, you know, when I come up just against my MRV and have a great cycle I feel the need to deload, certainly, but I also have that urge to me like, oh, you know, I kind of want, I feel like the, I'd rather be in the gym. So this honesty around these practices uh, can really only, I think, be well-established with time and trust. I mean, you, you hit the nail on that for sure. And it's also, I think, um, in addition to what you said, maybe a reframing of the traditional coach-athlete uh, relationship uh, away from parent and child, mm -hmm. which is, I think, some too often how that dynamic relates. Um, uh, so from evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology, we learned a couple of cool things about the parent-child relationship. It turns out that the um, parents and children don't have the exact intersecting interests. Um, parents uh, much more value safety and stability for their children because parents fundamentally want grandchildren. They want you to not get yourself killed doing something stupid. Um, but as an individual, as their child, you value achieving your highest levels of ability and getting the most out of life. Like if you, you just think of like how your parents think about stuff. If you, like I, my dad has literally told me, like Misha, that's my Russian name, that's what he calls me. He's like, Misha, you know, why do you need to lift all these weights and fight all these people in jiu-jitsu? Why can't you just be a professor? You know, you're already smart, you're already strong. Why do you have to go destroy your body doing this stuff? You know, to my dad, it's perfectly comfortable, you know, being, uh, being you know, like just on the upper edge of normal, high achieving, but, but to be a true rock star, he has no interest in that because why would he risk his son's health and life for something that doesn't even advantage him? He's just quickly happy with high level mediocre. Now for myself and for you and everyone else who's involved in our own betterment, every athlete wants the best for themselves. So the parents want the best for you. They say they want the best, but they really want some really good stuff and for you to be safe and healthy, which is super laudable. It's great. But it's not exactly, you know, what you want out of a coach, right? You don't want a coach to be like, well, let's take a deload just in case, okay? And all we want you to do is total at the next meet. You don't have to hit these PRs, you crazy, you crazy bastard, you. We're just going to meet and we'll go to an all-you-can-eat buffet after we'll have great fun. Like, mm, no, that's not a coach. That's a parent, right? So... I think it's better to view a coach or if you yourself view uh, your coach and kind of try to communicate to the athlete that you are much closer um, to like a mad scientist for a military engineering program gone wrong. Like you're a guy in the lab that takes part the Android after training sessions and reprograms him so he can take over entire planets and shoot lasers out of his eyes. That's the athlete and you're that mad scientist. You're just as crazy about them killing everyone, everything in their sight because you've lost your fucking mind. Um, may, you know, maybe even crazier than they are, but you understand that when their reactor overheats, the reason you're telling them slow down isn't because you fundamentally care about them as a person, even though you do. It's because you 
you don't want to destroy the reactor because that's going to take more fixing and it's going to make them weaker. You know what I mean? You want the reactor cooling, the deload, to happen because you want them to escalate their reactor even further next time, even more nuclear power, even more destruction to the enemy. That's why you're saying, hey, lay off the reactor this time, not as a parent, but as a mad scientist who has even crazier shit in the works. That is what I think a good relationship to a coach and an athlete is like, is you basically convince them, look, two of us are crazy, but I'm crazier than you. If you want to win, I want to win even more. That shit scares them. And then they're like, oh, wow, okay. Well, then I don't have to try to prove myself to you by trying too hard and going over my MRV. You're like, please. You know how many athletes I've seen over their MRV? I've bled on the platform before. Nothing impresses me. Let's do the right thing. Get the right amount of effort. I'm going to take everything from you that you're willing to give, but no more. Because we can only take what you can give and only what is right. You know, my own coach uh, in bodybuilding, Broderick Chavez, is a very amazing coach. You know, he's coached athletes more muscular than me, stronger than me, higher MRV than me, and <laughs> nothing's going to impress the guy. And, and I know that he's pretty crazy and loves the sort of stratospheric side of bodybuilding to just, just let all hinges pop and just see how jet we can get. I know that he thinks that. So when he says, hey, let's back off of training for a bit to give your body a break, I know it's not coming from some parental delusions. It's coming from a, sort of a crazy mad scientist's engineering concern for not breaking the system. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think that this, uh, your, I think that your humor, uh, which having listened to you for so long now is always just so spot on. And I, I sometimes we are, we joke at uh, the owners of the company, just how you, how it's so fast. Do you have analogies or, or these jokes at the ready, but it's, it's so quick. But what it does, well, I'll tell, I'll tell you why that is. It's because I have no friends. I just sit at home and practice these things all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but what it does uh, truly is it, it just like I think most humor does is it just kind of brings the truth out uh, and in a relatable way. Uh, we can all kind of laugh at it, but it does help us uh, kind of tease out uh, where we see ourselves in it all. And, and rather than just trying to sugarcoat it, it tells it for what it is. We need to train hard. Uh, but we can't train to the point where we can't recover for our next squat session or our next intense interval session. Uh, so I, I, I do, I do think that that all, all of the knowledge and just the presentation of it uh, will help drive home a message that we have been dispelling through what you have, of course, been delivering to the masses. So hopefully, while this all seems uh, like it echoes the same point. There were still some very valuable takeaways. And, and being respectful of your time too, Dr. Mike, I, I think we might uh, wrap it up as well as we come upon an hour. But is there anything else that, that you would like to conclude with or feel like you'd want to just wrap up based on, on that last point you had there? Sure. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's an infinite thing. You, you've been way too nice. You know, my contribution to the field is minimal, if not worthy at all. <laughs> uh, most of it's probably wrong. <laughs> but uh, I've actually been just saying lies as a joke to see how many people <laughs> I get to follow along with me. MRV is backwards. Um, but, but in all reality, uh, I think an important uh, potential pathway for coaches and athletes, if you get a real frustrating athlete, which you uh, we're going to get, if you coach five people, at least one of them is going to be really frustrating. Um, take that logic out with them. Sit down and talk to them. First of all, you tell them, look, I'm a crazy mad scientist. I'm on your side. I want you to get as strong as possible. I want you to rip your own fucking arms off trying to clean 200 <laughs> kilos. Like, that'd be great. <laughs> I would consider that a success. <laughs> so don't worry. We're not going to undertrain you for some weird purpose of me being trying to protective of your mother or father or something like that. And if they get into this argument of, well, I don't think I'm doing enough, 
lead them down the road of logic and be like, okay, so here's your MRV. You tell me what it is we're looking for when we're training above it. Let's work. And, and you're not even mocking them. You're saying, okay, maybe, maybe you have a point. Let's train twice as hard. What do you think we're going to get out of that? And they're like, we're going to get better, but we're not going to be able to recover. So you're just going to get worse. There's no, there's no comeback to that. You know, like people, people occasionally say things like, you know, we think about the Bulgarian program, or we think about, you know, Smolov Junior or Smolov or this and that, or German volume training. And I'm like, do you think you can recover from that? And they're like, I don't know. Well, well, if the answer is you don't know, and the answer is probably not, why, why would you do that? But a lot of times you get into conversations with athletes after this about like mental toughness. And they say things like, well, you know, if I'm mentally tough enough, then I'll recover. I mean, then just a physiology lesson being like, you know, your tendons don't give a shit how mentally tough you are. As a matter of fact, most mentally tough people rip their tendons off the bone. If you don't get some, there's no word to get for that shit. It's not like as soon as you pull your quad out of your bone, someone comes up to you on the squat rack and it's like, wow, you're a real warrior. You know, you go to the hospital and you spend uh, hours of surgery and, and, and weeks at the hospital and months at home. And it just sucks. It's a whole thing sucks. So I think if athletes are skeptical, of why we stay between our minimum effective volume and maximum recovery, you can talk to them and just very clearly let them come to the conclusion of, well, that's really stupid. You know what I mean? Because you can, it's not just, it doesn't have to be you telling them. You can ask them, it's okay, like, do you think there's a point at which our bodies can't recover anymore? They say, yes, but if our willpower is really good and our nutrition is good, we can recover from even more. You go, sweet, I agree with you. Taking that into account, now we have 1.25 times our usual MRV. Is there a point above that which is too much? And they're going to have to be like, well, yeah. You're like, okay, here's my job as a coach. Prevent you from going there. <laughs> That's it. So I'll tell, I'll let you know when I think we've gone there and we'll communicate and we'll back off when needed. And then you can reemphasize to them, listen, I will never put you back when I don't think it's, is needed. Like, do you think I run a training hall full of whistles? Do you think I like, like it when people come visit my training hall and like, none of those lifters work hard? Nobody likes that. And do you think I like leading lifter games? Can you imagine being a coach, watching a lifter like take second at nationals, one of your lifters, and being like, ah, if I only pushed her harder, we would have been first. I mean, that feeling isn't something that leaves a coach in five minutes. And when all the weightlifters have gotten over there, they're okay with a silver medal, and they're posting their pics on Instagram, and they're at the IHOP that evening after, they're having fun, and you're fucking writhing inside because you failed. Like, nobody likes that. As a coach, you want to make sure you have... Every technology, every investment you gave to your athletes so they could be their best. If you communicate that enough to your athletes, they start to kind of leave it, and they question you much less, and it's better for everyone. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think just having that honest communication, treating your athletes as people, yep. right, and just speaking to them as adults is very important. And to remind them that if a program has the name Junior attached to it, uh, Junior, then maybe that is enough evidence <laughs> that that's not what they can do. <laughs> you know, hey, at least it's not small enough senior. Definitely going. Yeah, that's that's a great point. <laughs> you know, on, on a quick aside, I do have. A, a, luckily, I do have a couple spare minutes here. On a, on a quick aside, it's always hilarious to me. The feedback I get from like this the, the volume, like, these extremity programs, is always the same. Like people, they give you like for me at least, they give me this deadpan look at the gym, and they're like, "So we think like tomorrow, Junior." I'm like, ah, I start my bullshit science talk, and they're like, "Yeah, I got really strong off of it." And then I, I all I do is wait. I'm like, mm-hmm. and they're like. And then I blew out my knees. And I'm like, ah, now we're talking. Okay. And like, yeah, I couldn't squat for a year after that because I just had knee pain every time I walked. And I'm like, I could have told you that. So it's almost funny because they're almost arguing like a devil's advocate. They're like, well, I did get really strong. And I want to be like, what's that worth, motherfucker? Well, so what? You got strong for less. So you could be really strong and inactive because your knees hurt too much. And they're like, yeah, true. And, and unfortunately, a lot of these people will flip back that kind of stuff. Once, and this is the really crazy part about how. You know, part of the argument for science and reason and logic and against dogma is to resist our own temptations to do this catharsis all over again. Some people, when they heal, when their knees heal from small off junior, they'll be like, what do you think? German volume training? Like, have you learned nothing? Yeah. Oh my God. What is wrong with you? And that's fortunately where we're able to create trust 
I, I think um, sooner than others would perhaps because a good amount of those come to us have exceeded their MRV and feel like they're swimming in the deep. So they're just willing to kind of turn it over. And, and even, you know, this reminds me, um, we've had um, Alex Viata on a few times. Uh, He's really good at the stuff. Yeah. And he, um, he said something that just really kind of spoke to me. It's when, when you exceed this MRV and you let that catharsis and ego just totally run wild, it's not two or three months that you are spending time away from the gym or not getting fitter. It is twice that amount of time that your competitors are getting better. And when I heard that, I just was like, Oh, this is something that I will repeat in the politest way of possible to those who, who, who are still in, in, however many ways they need it thrown at them and kind of knocked on the head that this is not any voodoo craziness. It's just science and, uh, and it's logical um, that we need to have uh, these honest communications grounded in logic uh, and that come from a sincere place. I, I don't really do anything more than that. No, for sure. Luckily, you know, in weightlifting particularly, you have a really good example. You can always kind of sort of browbeat your athletes with if needed. And I think, of course, the conversation has to come up before and after that. But as far as examples go, you know, one thing I always like to, you know, I've interacted with my fair share of weightlifters in a, in a nutritional coaching capacity. I've trained alongside them um, and heard their lamentations that they're not doing enough or something like that. Um, where I'm bodybuilding, I'm like, let me tell you about doing too much. <laughs> I'm doing triple your volume load. You don't want any part of this. <laughs> I'm not fast or explosive. But um, one of the things is, you know, you ask them a sort of this very, very wildly rhetorical question. Of, do, do you think the Chinese lifters come in and emotionally express themselves in training? Or do you think the coaches have their entire career mapped out for them from front to back? And they go, well, and you go, huh? Do you, when you have a Chinese lifter in weight class at Worlds, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing for your sports class? And they're like, well, these people are, you know, it's funny, they asked Dmitry Klokov, I'm sure you know who that is. Uh, I had to translate one of his interviews. And they asked him like, what, where he wanted to, yeah, they asked him where he wanted to go with weightlifting, where he wanted to see the sport evolve. He's like, I want to see... He's like, I'm glad America's getting better at weightlifting because I want to see Russia and America go at head to head, like back in the Cold War days, only this time in a peaceful way and like some awesome competition, East versus West, great shit. And they're like, what about the Chinese? He's like, what about the Chinese? They're machines. It's not even fun watching them compete anymore because they just decimate everybody. <laughs> and it's just like, he's like, nobody's catching the Chinese. So it's just one of those cool things that you can always bring up. Like, look, you know, you may have this like, you know, you know, you know live or die kind of attitude you really just want to like keep putting more weight on the bar like i'm gonna snatch your pr today even though it's no program you're like i don't care about fatigue like what do you think the chinese are doing they're doing exactly what it takes to get better they're planning everything out they're being incredibly meticulous uh, just to put this in perspective this is something that was circling around etsu actually what happened um, a couple of years prior to the beijing olympics china as a government their sport body hired 1,000 sports scientists at the same time oh man they're thinking over there <laughs> They're not playing roulette. <laughs> they're not, you know, there's no daddy. I want to train and really feel the lights. Like those people are out of train camp quick. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if you really want to be the best, ask yourself, what would machines do? What would the Chinese do? Same thing. And uh, the answer is uh, an appropriate level of stimulus, which also, by the way, just, just in case we're forgetting this part of the conversation, look, if you have to hit, if you're getting close to your MRV and you have to push your last week of accumulation and you have five by three you know, drop snatch sets and you're tired and you're getting you know, psychologically out of it and you don't want to try anymore, if you're at that point, you got to nut and do what is expected of you. you, know? so on, you know, we've been saying that don't do too much thing this entire podcast, but on the other hand, it's like, look, when the program falls for it, when you're well within your recovery capacity and you're intentionally trying to overshoot for deloading, 
you got to do shit. And it doesn't matter if you don't feel like it or you're kind of, oh, like, I don't know, and I'm feeling super athletic. You do what it takes. So there's both sides of the coin. The best kind of athletes do what is required, not what they feel like doing necessarily. For sure. I, I, I played baseball and achieved uh, a, a level that I was quite proud of where there was such trust built with the team and the coach and social media. I was younger. There's no social media. Attachment. It's just what we did. There was never really any questioning of doing more ever. It was that you would bust your ass and you knew that what was expected of you because there was already such high volume. Uh, it was just, it was enough. And you had that trust and you just went in and over and it, you know, of course, it doesn't happen overnight, but when it happens, I think that's when the magic starts kind of building and you kind of see what's really capable from a performance standpoint. Yeah, that's so perfect. And, and by the way, just kudos to what you guys are doing over there with uh, just a logical, calm, trust-building, meticulous approach. Um, I think it's a breath of fresh air, and I think it's something that's spreading against you guys are some of the first people to do it, and it's, it's sorely needed. I, I really appreciate it. What, what I'll do, Mike, is I'll send you some photos. We have a few of them printed. These are posters. We, while we work, uh, the business is primarily remote. We have an on-site space in Asheville. We have posters that outline reps and reserves so people know what's going on. And we have these graphics to just make it really clearly understood. But the graphic we're working on, maybe I can ask you for some help on this, but we want it to the effect of – Imagine those motivational posters that start with like the be the best that you can be in bright letters. But then as the poster gets smaller and the font gets uh, thinner and smaller, it kind of details within your maximum recoverable volumes, working pat, you know, but it, it just, it's, it's funny, but it, it creates a culture and, and people are, are patient for it. And they're also going to beat their competitors. So we have, we really do it and it, and it hasn't been uh, understated it can't be understated how much you've helped us and we know so many other businesses that are, are helping other people in turn uh it has been uh, such a pleasure having you on and just uh just a pleasure following you along on, on this uh, journey for sure awesome thank you so much it's been super super fun all right mike thanks